Welcome to New Perceptions Podcast, the official podcast of the Journal of Psychedelic Psychiatry. The New Perceptions Podcast is for education, information, and entertainment purposes only. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of hosts and guests and do not reflect the official policies of the entity. This podcast in the Journal of Psychedelic Psychiatry does not support or condone illegal use, distribution, or sale of psychedelic substances. Furthermore, the topics discussed should not be solely used to diagnose, treat, or prevent disease or conditions. And the reading of or listening to this podcast does not constitute a doctor patient relationship. The content discussed does not constitute medical advice, and any specific medical questions should be directed toward or personal health care professional. If you are listening to us on the Journal of Psychedelic Psychiatry website, it would be easier for you and better for us if you would please consider following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so that you will be notified when the latest episode airs. I am Dr. Tyler Jervisted, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal, and it's my privilege to welcome you to this author interview edition of the podcast. Dr. Rachel Allen is a double board certified anesthesiologist and chronic pain specialist. Dr. Scott Allen is a board certified anesthesiologist and has specialty training in transplant anesthesiology. Together they run the Satori Health and Wellness Clinic in St. George, Utah. Their letter to the editor can be found in the latest edition of the journal. Uh, Scott, welcome to the New Perceptions podcast. Yes, thank you for having me on. Awesome. Well, could you maybe tell the listeners out there a little bit about yourself and how you came to be involved in the ketamine space? Yeah, so so I'm uh, Scott Allen. I'm a, a anesthesiologist, MD anesthesiologist, um, and my wife Rachel Allen. She's also an MD anesthesiologist. She'll be joining us later, but she had a, a prior obligation that she had to attend to, so she, hopefully she'll be able to uh, join us halfway through. So I grew up in Southern Utah and uh, went to medical school in the Medical College of Wisconsin. Did my anesthesiology residency at the University of Utah. And I actually did a fellowship in liver transplant anesthesiology. So, so kind of as far away from mental health as you could get in that regard. Um, but while I was at the University of Utah, they were doing some interesting studies um, regarding different anesthetics uh, for use in uh, mental health. So they were doing some studies on ketamine, and they were also doing some studies on uh, using propofol and uh, like isoflurane for uh, severe mood disorders. And so I was involved a little bit with the, that research. I was with Dr. Scott Tadler, who was sort of a mentor of mine. And it, they were showing some really cool results, um, showing that if you put people into a kind of a deeper anesthetic state, so if you'd use maybe like twice the dose of the anesthetics that we would uh, typically use for general anesthesia, um, you could uh, treat people with treatment-resistant depression. And so I was involved with that a little bit. Um, I was at, on faculty at the University of Utah for about three years, and then um, decided we wanted to move back to my hometown, St. George, Utah. So we took uh, jobs down in St. George, Utah. And shortly after we moved down there, um, a lot of people were approaching me about using ketamine for uh, treatment-resistant depression. At the time, there was really nobody in the area um, doing that. Um, so St. George um, is kind of an isolated community between um, Las Vegas and Salt Lake City. Uh, they didn't really have ECT, you know, they had normal psychiatry, but no ketamine therapy. So, so for people who were, um, I guess, really suicidal, they didn't really have a lot of options at the time. So we opened our ketamine clinic, which we called Satori, and um, about two, a little more than two years ago. And it's, uh, it's just been very rewarding for us. 
That's that's interesting. Could you speak a little bit more about some of these uh, other non-ketamine, um, you know, sedatives um, that you guys were were using, and and how how many times would you have to treat somebody? Was this a one-time uh, treatment, or was this something that was kind of an ongoing process? Yeah. So the the studies using propofol for uh, depression, um, so they it was usually a series of treatments, kind of like what we do with ketamine. Um, they do I think they were doing weekly um, sessions with it. And after you know three or four sessions, people were more or less in remission from their from their mood disorders. And I have the other Dr. Allen here. Um, I'm going to put her on as well. And so here she is. Well, I'm the the other half, the more feminine version of this masculinity that he's just uh, put out there. Uh, but both of us are um, both anesthesiologists as well. We actually met in medical school in the uh, beautiful anatomy lab over our first patient and uh you know so many years later here we are opening up a psychedelic ketamine clinic in saint george after we really saw the the desperate need for it and the lack of other opportunities for patients to treat their mood disorders you know unfortunately when we are indoctrinated as young had ones as medical students it's a very interesting way that you're given as far as treatments for all these mood disorders such as you know treatment resistant depression anxiety ptsd and you see all these things something as simple as electroconvulsive therapy that you have to think man is there no other way we can treat our mood disorders as as human beings other than sometimes shocking the brain so as as we dug more and saw more we were just astounded of why have we not tapped into something like ketamine. So as that started to become more on the forefront, it really captured both Scott and my attention and seeing the real progress that people were making with it just made us so excited to, to be able to offer that. Because, you know, at the end of the day, most of us go into medicine wanting to just really help people. You know, we're, we nerd out on it and all the fun stuff, but we really all just want to help people kind of just live their best lives. And that's where Satori came in. Yeah, and Rachel had um, done extra training in chronic pain management. So she had, you know, and so uh, in, with chronic pain patients, there's uh, an overlap between psychiatry and anesthesia there. So she was kind of primed to um, move over into that space as well. So. Absolutely. And it was interesting because there are certain even um, diagnoses that we use ketamine for and fairly high dose for in pain management. And what was fascinating of what I found from my standpoint was as I was treating a lot of these people's pain, they would also say, hey, by the way, Dr. Allen, is it normal for like my mood to be so much better? And it just got the wheels turning of like, whoa, what, what's going on here? Not only was their treatment resistant pain, but their treatment resistant depression was being treated as well. And they go so hand in hand, you know, I always tell everybody, if you don't feel depressed if you have chronic pain, you're you're abnormal. So it's so normal. We go and do that. And then right before you got here, Rachel, we were talking about the uh, propofol studies that they were doing at the University of oh, Utah yeah. for depression. And so I'm just looking it up here, Tyler. They, the, um, the protocol that they were using, so it was a series of 10 propofol, infu 10 propofol infusions. And I think they would separate them out a week apart. And um, they would dose propofol to achieve birth suppression. 
And so that, that's probably about two to three times the dose of propofol that we'd normally use during general anesthesia. Yeah, that, that was all very fascinating. I'm going to have to look into those propofol studies because I've peripherally heard about that, but I've never really um, encountered somebody that was actually um, even remotely involved in something like that. So I, I just, I felt I had to, <laughs> I had to ask more about that. So um, I wanted to segue kind of back around to your guys' discussion about moving out to this area and being able to provide a type of treatment that was um, heretofore not available to to the um, community there. And I wanted to tie that into your guys' letter to the editor where you had some real um, concerns and critiques to Dr. Ryan's kind of commentary on um, the ethical guidelines for ketamine clinicians and just kind of have you guys discuss what your concerns were in that regard and how that kind of ties into your ability to provide this medication that otherwise probably would not have been provided to the patients in your area. Yeah, so that, that, that's a great question. So um, as, as we've been involved with, um, you know, ketamine and psychedelic medicine, um, as it's getting more popularized, we're seeing other clinics pop up. And we, you know, we, maybe to a fault, we try to really make it the best experience possible for patients um, in terms of, you know, psychological safety. Uh, we feel really strongly that it's important to have, you know, qualified persons sitting with the patient while they're getting ketamine therapy. And unfortunately, in a lot of in a lot of the clinics that we're seeing pop up, um, to make it more profitable, you know, they'll treat three, four, five, or more people at a time, um, which you can treat a lot of people that way. But we, you know, if, if you've seen people who are having a bad trip or a challenging experience, um, that's probably not the best way to achieve the, you know, desired effect. And a lot of it. Um, from the beginning, we've been kind of trying to follow the studies that they're doing with psilocybin. So I, out of uh, Roland, Griffith, Roland Griffith's lab, um, showing that the quality of the psychedelic experience uh, correlates with the degree of depression relief. And so we've gone to pretty great lengths to try to provide the, uh, the best experience people can have while they're getting ketamine. Um, in an effort to one, uh, treat their depression and two, uh, make it so they don't need as many ketamine treatments. Because if you can create a better therapeutic experience for people, it's more likely they're not gonna need as much ketamine. And when you say, you know, even a, to, to a fault, I think our fault is our, like on us in the sense of a monetary standpoint. You know, when we're dealing with people's psyches, there feels something just, well, yucky about taking people who are in a very vulnerable space and monetizing a lot of that. Now, granted, we always have to keep the lights on, but I think that's what Scott's kind of mentioning about that, that aspect of things. But one of our biggest things of the ethics of it is one, it really hasn't been defined. You know, we have ethics within medicine to a certain extent, but you know, what are the ethics of, of some of the psychedelic medicine? You know, unfortunately, as we've as we've grown and we've we've have had experience with a lot of patients who are in these spots, we are left with picking up a lot of the pieces of experiences they've had on outside clinics, where as Scott has mentioned, it's a pretty almost dramatic experience without a, a beautiful structure and a really good set and setting, you know, that mindset and setting going in. So one of the things that we we often do. Um, every, or I should say, every time we do is really set an intention for all of our patients, whether it's, I just want these, these feelings to be less intrusive to 
I want to feel the light again on my skin and feel warmth because I haven't felt that for a long time or whatever it is. I don't want to be ruled by my traumatic reaction as well. So that's where those, those aspects of things of sitting with everybody and just being and creating a space for everyone is it's one and an honor. And two, you feel like, wow, why, why are we not all doing this for each other? How can we heal without creating space? I want to touch on um, an aspect you, you, you noted there, which was whenever you have a better, almost ketamine-assisted psychotherapy standpoint, are you seeing patients that are requiring fewer ketamine administrations um, as opposed to just people that are getting ketamine and just being observed without any even psychotherapeutic support, let alone psychotherapy? You know, that's, that's our anecdotal experience. It's kind of hard to say when, when you're not directly comparing the two. So the, the protocol that we've kind of settled on is, uh, well, so a lot of clinics will do six treatments in two weeks um, because I, I think that's where most of the literature is, you know, doing the studies uh, kind of in, kind of, kind of using it like, you know, you would in SSRI, like repeated doses of a, of a medicine. Um, what we do is we do six treatments over three months. So it'll be two treatments the first week, one treatment a week after that. Then two weeks later, we do another one. Then three weeks after that, and we start spreading them out. And we, we've seen pretty good results from that. Um, our, our patients are usually pretty satisfied. And I, I feel like it's a more sustainable way. Uh, one, because I think you can develop that therapeutic relationship between the provider and the patient, and, and it's more sustained over a longer period of time. So, so there's that aspect of it, the therapeutic relationship. Um, two, it allows patients to have a longer period of time to process the insights that they're gaining during the ketamine therapy. So, so we do you know, some integration work in the clinic, um, quite, quite a bit of integration work in the clinic. And um, I feel like that integration work is more durable when you have um, a longer period of time in which you're in, interacting with patients versus just having kind of a two-week short burst with them. Yeah, that, that is very interesting because I think the one thing that has always, I don't want to say concerned me, but I've always taken note of with ketamine is the fact that these studies are very short in duration and the longevity of the effects has always um, been kind of called into question in my mind. Like how far out is this? How much repeated dosing do we need? And so I'm just curious, as you're treating these patients, how far uh, out are some of your patients um, after they complete this kind of six-month period here? Do you have them coming back for routine maintenance um, or are there even patients that, that haven't required it at all? Um, all of the above, I would say. You know, we've had some people go out six months to a year and some people some traumatic kind of experience kind of pops up within their experiences too, and they kind of come in for more repeat maintenance. So what have you seen, Scott? So, you know, we're, we're a little more than two years out since we started seeing our first patients, and we have a handful of patients who come back. Well, it depends, you know. So some people are starting from a really, you know, bad place. Maybe they've just had years of PTSD and a lot of trauma, and they're maybe in their 50s and 60s and their brains maybe aren't as pliable. Um, we, we have a handful of patient, patients who are coming back monthly. Um, some people, you know, get the three-month course and, and we never see them again. Um, either, you know, maybe the ketamine wasn't the magic bullet for them that they were anticipating or they're doing a lot better and they don't need to come back. 
Um, and then we have some people who are kind of in the middle who will, um, you know, maybe kind of follow up every, every four or five, six months. Interesting. Um, could you kind of walk the listeners through kind of what your general um, protocol is? You've talked about the ketamine, um, but if somebody came to you as a new consultation, uh, how much like preparatory work are you guys doing? Do you partner with psychologists or psychiatrists in the area to help do any mental health assessments? Are there any like exclusionary diagnoses? Um, just what's your intake process like um, prior to all of this? Yeah. So, so in an ideal world, we have, you know, a pretty long, you know, intake process with an in-house therapist who could, um, you know, do a handful of preparatory sessions before you actually get into the ketamine sessions. Um, what we're finding is kind of cost prohibitive to do that. Um, so what we do is we do an initial consultation with patients and um, do a, a psychiatric assessment with them to rule out um, kind of major, major cardiopulmonary disease. Uh, we rule out uh, major neurological disease like intracranial hypertension. Uh, family history of schizophrenia, um, a personal history of um, like psychosis. Um, we, we do struggle, like, do we treat bipolar patients? And I, I think that's a, a question in the um, psychedelic world is, uh, should you be using it on bipolar patients? I, I personally feel comfortable doing it with bipolar two patients if they have, if like mania is a remote problem with them. Um, if main mania seems to be more of a predominant feature, I usually elect not to treat those patients. I agree. Yeah. And uh, so, so we do, we do that initial consultation session. Um, what we, what we like mostly is we have a handful of therapists in the community who refer out to us. And that works the best when, when therapists who know the kind of the ketamine process um, have patients that they think would benefit. And then we will do the ketamine and with the patient. And then we work closely with the patient's personal therapist to, um, to give them better care that way. That, that, that's kind of my favorite way of doing it when we have people who are, who are getting good care already. Um, and also, you know, I would say a lot of our patients now as we have begun to make over the last couple of years, those bonds between our therapists some of them will even come and sit in in our sessions as well, and we can find that to be helpful, very helpful as well for both our clients, our patients, as well as you know, as the therapist as well to kind of see what's kind of brought up too. So the general progression is referral from our local therapists and or people finding us online or uh, some word of mouth is actually pretty big. And then they come in and as we sit with them, we actually sit and go through, as Scott said, that whole intake, let them, and then also let them know what to, what to experience, like what they will come in with, meet those expectations. And we also give them usually a handout too. If you don't have a therapist, you don't have somebody that you're aligned with, we have kind of curated a list of people um, that have focuses on different areas as we get to know that patient, who might be also the best, um, focused area for them as well. Yeah, and some people come to us, they're kind of, you know, they've been through the uh, mental health care system and they're kind of burned out from therapists. And they, it's kind of fun, we, we call it kind of like a backdoor therapy. So people come in, you know, thinking that they're not gonna be meeting with the therapist, but we're like, well, actually, while you're here, you're actually gonna get 
quite a bit of therapy. You just you just maybe don't realize it. So so that's kind of um, a way of doing it. Um, one one uh, challenge that we've um, encountered, you know, being in a smaller community and kind of being the at the tip of the spear in this new area, most of the mental health community really didn't know about ketamine. And even now they're just kind of starting to feel their way around it. Um, and so finding, finding therapists who were comfortable um, kind of holding space for people and who were uh, comfortable with non-ordinary states of consciousness, uh, they just didn't exist in, in Southern Utah. So uh, we kind of had to create and help train some people to do that as well. But once they're once they're there after that first initial consultation, they get to meet us, they get to meet them, and then they also get to see our space. You know, one of the biggest things that we really focused on too is creating a setting that's not scary or very sterile or cold, but we allow them to see this little pioneer home that we've kind of retrofitted. It almost looks like, you know, a your living room and the chair they'll be sitting in. Um, the blanket they can cuddle up in, where all of that kind of magic happens. Uh, that way they can get their feet wet and understand what, what they're kind of coming into. And then we do have them let them know, you know, we're going to have to have you fast, you know, for eight hours before. We do need you to bring a driver. We don't want you driving after anything. And then just also know what to expect afterwards. You know, people can definitely see the other patient once coming. We felt like they were a little bit more of a live wire right afterwards. So giving themselves some compassion towards themselves um, and even maybe lightening their load over the next couple of days or so, giving them some guidance and not just all in that first session is, is kind of what we go over. Um, that that's all very very helpful, and I, I should, suppose I should have asked this earlier. When you're administering ketamine, are you giving it IV, IM, PO? Or are you doing all all of the above depending on the patient? Yeah. So so we the the mainstay of what we do is IV. We feel like we can control the experience better um, giving it intravenously, because um, for us it, it it a lot of it comes back to the quality of the experience um, achieving that therapeutic benefit. Um, but we, we have done IM um, and we have done the lozenges. We have a, a few therapists out in the community who are doing ketamine assisted therapy with the lozenges. So, so we, we personally don't do lozenges in the clinic, but when, when patients have come through a few treatments with us at Satori, we'll prescribe them the lozenges which they can then take um, in a normal therapy session for as part of like a ketamine assisted psychotherapy. And we work with our local pharmacy, um, compound fusion pharmacy that allows us to data kind of find an alternative. And then we, we do for some patients who maybe money is really tight and they need kind of that monthly higher dose um, treatment. We have a, a home health nurse who will go out and do intramuscular injections on patients. Um, Kind of one of our protocol for the intravenous therapy is we will do um, like 0.5, so 0.5 to 1.5 milligrams per kilo, um, depending on the patient. And we will do that over about 30 minutes um, of the actual treatment. And then as they're coming down, that's really the, the time, kind of that golden, maybe 20 to 30 minutes where you can kind of their ego defenses are lowered. Um, you can kind of unlock a lot of the um, deeper issues that we're dealing with. Um, 
some patients with PTSD, that's the best time to kind of help uh, work them through their traumas and they can kind of uh, have a period of catharsis there, which, which I find to be very, very therapeutically satisfying. Yeah, Rachel's really got a gift for ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. It's, I, I don't know if it's a, I mean, a male-female thing or, or what, but man, Rachel really connects well with people. And I think being, you know, more kind of coming from a more typical male dominated anesthesia profession where we're very interventional. Um, I think my kind of default is like, well, you're here, you're here for a reason. So let's like make the most of it. And so I, I, I think I tend to be a little bit more interventional while we, Rachel's a little bit more better about holding space for people in terms of uh, really, really allowing them to come up with the insights. And then, and then Rachel can, like she say, bookmark it for, for later and let those neurons make those connections. Well, and, and I think that's one thing in which we, we try to be really cognizant of, because I, I think Rachel and I both feel pretty strongly that the, uh, that like, like it really should be ketamine assisted psychotherapy um, it, to get the most out of it. Um, if you're, you know, there may be some medication effect from it. Um, and, and I think that's where this bravado uh, people are going down. It's like they, they want it to, to be a medication effect. But I just, I don't think that that's in the long run, like that's going to be the, I don't know, the, like the, the most manageable way of delivering psychedelic medicine. I, I would agree. I think that there is something intrinsically valuable about the experience one and then the psychotherapeutic, both uh, interventions beforehand and then and then afterward. I'm curious what you guys think, as opposed to what Dr. Ryan um, had mentioned about what um, you know, either credentialing or um, you know training that you think ketamine providers should have to go through, if any, um, prior to being able to to administer this medication. So, so the actual medication administration is fairly straightforward. Well, I don't know. I, I say that as an anesthesiologist who gives it a lot, so so it, it may be um, I may be a little bit biased, but but the medication is safe. Um, you know, unless somebody has un uncontrolled hypertension or uncontrolled coronary artery disease um, or intracranial pathology, it's it's very safe medication. Um, it's just that the the psychological effects of it can can be pretty uh, unpredictable. And so I think that's where more training needs to come in. Like Rachel was saying, hold, holding space for people while also uh, knowing how to deliver the medication effectively to create a good experience. And I think one of the good things um, that may describe it best is, you know, in anesthesia, we, we have that ability to get trained for four years on how this medication works in the outs when to use it when not to use it and so we have that so i definitely believe there should be some type of training for continuing medical education on the use of ketamine um, if you are trained to use ketamine in let's say a residency or perhaps even as scott's mentioned you know the the psychological implications are a whole different ballgame you know but as he said you know we've been using ketamine for so long um, for what, 60 plus years now in a very safe manner. It's actually one of our drugs we use in like maternal fetal medicine in the sense of like mom and baby when we're in the OR doing a C-section and there's some pain and anesthesia that's needed. It's a great medication for that. And it's safe for mama, it's safe for baby. And I recently just used that. But if I had been appreciative of 
perhaps even in very low doses, if he still had some of these psychedelic experiences, I even just switched on some music for this, this mama who I could tell was starting to have a little bit of this dissociative experience. And she still talked to me like hours later, she's like, I don't know what you did, but I felt like I had a experience that, and she put that in air quotations. And um, she's like, whatever music you played, like I felt like it really helped. So, you know, we're finding how you approach that experience is, is so key. So it could be cold, sterile, fluorescent lights, or it could be beautiful music, taking you to this beautiful experience. Your, your, your mom, you know, you're having a baby. This is even beautiful in that, in that situation. So I do think there needs to be some formal, at least continuing mental education or training and perhaps those forms of use. Yeah, and I, I wonder what that would look like because in anesthesia, you get, you get really good at, you don't call it holding space, but holding space for patients who are, who are in traumatic situations, you know, so uh, people who are, who are scared to have surgery. Um, so there, there's a type of anesthesia you do, it's called monitored anesthesia care, um, which is more or less deep sedation. So maybe they're having like a lower extremity surgery um, using local anesthesia, but on top of that, maybe you're giving some ketamine and propofol and, and other medications to alleviate anxiety and to also, um, you know, kind of help people uh, get, get through, sometimes it can be a kind of an emotionally traumatic surgery. Um, maybe they're getting like a knee replacement under spinal anesthesia, cesarean section, similar. Um, <clears throat> the, these are times where anesthesiologists actually get really good about help, helping people um, through these experiences. And it's kind of similar to what, what you're doing in psychedelic medicine. So, you know, these, these psychologically challenging experiences um, come up and anesthesiologists, you know, by and large uh, can help people get through them pretty, pretty effectively. Um, and so I think that's where the benefit of an anesthesia residency comes in is how do you use all the different types of medications to provide a good experience for people? Um, now, what you're lacking in anesthesia residency is the, um, the psychotherapy training, which you might get in like psychiatry. Um, so if I think if there were some way to maybe have like a fellowship or, you know, some, some sort of training course where you can learn how to uh, effectively manage real-time administration of ketamine and other psychedelics to provide the best experience, while also kind of giving some of the psychotherapy training um, that some of their uh, subspecialties are lacking. We almost need an interventional psychiatry fellowship or something. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've, I have heard, I think, did the University of Utah have that? Where they, would, they were using like ketamine and TMS and, and some other uh, situations. I think it was like a one-year fellowship or maybe a six-month fellowship. Yeah, I, I haven't heard of that before, but it wouldn't surprise me if they're if they're out there. Um, I don't know of anything that would be, you know, accredited. It would just be kind of like a add-on thing. Um, but kind of to that end, do you know of any, um, body or have you guys gone to any training seminars that you thought were particularly helpful that you might recommend to other people if they were looking to get involved in this space? So I, I do like the, uh, training that, uh, um, Dr. Raquel Bennett puts out through the CREA Institute. Um, the, a lot of, in and honestly, like the ketamine papers book that Dr. Wolfson, Wolfson wrote was very informative. Um, 
otherwise, I haven't been to, there's the American Society of Ketamine Physicians. I haven't been to any of their trainings yet. COVID's kind of put a, a damper on all that. So it's been kind of hard to get involved. Um, and then there's another one, uh, it's called Prati Psychedelic Research and Training Institute. Um, th those are the ones that I, I've looked through their syllabi and, and they seem to be the most effective uh, method of doing that. I think one of the most important things is finding somebody that you really feel is doing this type of ketamine treatments ethically and along those lines and really shadowing. I mean, we forget how important that is. That's not what our residencies all were, you know, is glorified shadowing for years and years and then getting your hands in with that. There's nothing, there's nothing better about, about that as well. So what, what we did uh, when we started too, because you know we were concerned about the, um, I guess the therapy side of it, we teamed up with the director of uh, behavioral medicine at our local hospital, uh, Dr. Aaron Vasquez, he's a psychiatrist. And uh, we kind of created protocols together for you know, his use of it as an inpatient, on the inpatient use it, of it. And then um, he would help advise us on the use of it for outpatient medicine. And so kind of comparing notes and kind of combining both of our expertises, uh, we, were, we were able to come up with a pretty good program where he would start patients you know, who were suicidal um, coming into B-Med and then we would follow up as an outpatient. So we kind of had a coordination of care there. Yeah, that all sounds really interesting. Um, we are still kind of working on that at my institution about what role ketamine is going to play. And so um, I think that would be very helpful to have some some pathways already kind of outlined and uh, things that could be read it, readily duplicated and, and implemented at different places. So I, I hope that that work continues and we can kind of start to build on this after COVID is is gone away. Yeah, that would be great. Awesome. And, and then I think one of the things I'm, I'm landing on that that creates the best experience for people. It's the quality of the person actually delivering it. So if you have, um, you know, you know, as you know, if you're sitting there with somebody who's uncertain or scared or unconfident, that's going to come across to the patients, and then they're going to have a more of a nervous experience, and they're not going to have a, a, a great time. Um, but if you have somebody who's open, who's good at holding space, who you know is insightful. Um, I don't. I don't think it matters too much if they're a psychiatrist or an ER doctor, or anesthesiologist, or or even just a, a nurse. Um, the just the quality of that person is going to translate into the therapeutic outcomes. Not even just a nurse. You know what I mean? Like some uh, of our yeah. nurses can hold space oh. so much better. Oh, they're better than me for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it really is that, that beautiful intrinsic personality and experience in it that I think we as human beings can connect with each other. And I think some of us can tap into that um, perhaps easier um, than others. Yeah, well, I, I honestly, I think that kind of sums up everything, right? It's not necessarily the medication that's doing the work. It's the environment and the psychotherapy skills and just being there with the patient that is probably paying larger dividends um, over the, the long term. And so it's just that milieu and that um, involvement with the patient, that healing touch almost to a certain degree, 
Um, and so I think that's a great way to kind of segue way into the, the closing parts here, which are if patients wanted to reach out to you guys or learn more about um, what services you offer, where would you direct them? And if you had um, any additional reading material on ketamine or stuff that um, you feel would be helpful for the listeners out there to read, um, what would you recommend? And I'll be sure to link all that in the show notes. For sure. So we have a website. It's at St. George, S-T-G-E-O. RGE ketamine.com. So that's just our clinic's website. Uh, we have some educational material on there um, that people can, can access. Um, and then just in terms of learning more about ketamine therapy, I'd, I'd encourage people to um, go to the CREA website. Um, I, I think your journal is awesome, the Journal of Psychedelic Psychiatry. Um, the ketamine papers. Um, is, is a great website. Um, Maps, of course, has, has some great information there. How to Change Your Mind. Oh, yeah. Yeah, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Um, I, I just, I think, I think it's there, it just brings in so many things from philosophy. I, I'm a fan of, you know, kind of learning more about philosophy, um, kind of some of the more like maybe the Eastern spiritual traditions. Um, I, I think it just, there's no one right way of doing it because you're, you're taking an experience that's ineffable and as large as the universe. And how do you distill that down into, you know, an hour and a half session. So it's, uh, you know, I, I just think it, it there, there's so much people can learn to bring into this that, um, that the more you learn about it, the better. Absolutely. And we're also on, you know, social media as well. People will find that a little bit less, um, you know, intrusive, you know, you can always go to Satori underscore health and wellness as well, as well as our Facebook too, Satori Health, and give us a message there, or if they're struggling with something specifically, or even just have a question, you know, we, we really do, it's just us, so we always say bear with us, but you're getting a response directly from one of us as physicians, um, so we're, we're really here to if you have questions to help guide you with what we know i mean we're we're along this journey just as much as as everyone else yeah well i think that is a, a great place to to leave it and i'll be sure to link all that information in the show notes so everybody can find you and uh, look up all that information after the fact so rachel and scott thank you so much for coming on new perceptions yes thank you so much um please stay in touch with us and it's it's been a real pleasure yes thank you so much for having us this has been wonderful I hope you've enjoyed today's interview. If you would like to submit an article for potential publication in the journal or you have further questions, please visit our website, journalofpsychedelicpsychiatry.org, or send us an email at journalofpsychedelicpsychiatry at gmail.com. To stay up to date on all the latest information regarding the journal, please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening to New Perceptions.